Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. Today, Clarissa and I sit down with Vincent Santiago. Vincent Santiago's research interests broadly include eating behaviors, body image, and bariatric surgery. Vincent's doctoral dissertation explores the use of an intervention for food addiction. This intervention combines adapted motivational interviewing, a person-centered counseling approach, and cognitive behavioral therapy skills for eating-related issues, and will be tested in a randomized controlled trial. Vincent's master's thesis explored psychosocial factors, i.e. adult attachment style, emotion regulation, and psychopathology related to cigarette smoking following bariatric surgery. For his undergraduate thesis, he studied the influence of video messages on healthier eating among students who engaged in restrained and unrestrained eating. He previously worked in research positions at Toronto Western Hospital's Bariatric Surgery Program and the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. We are so excited to have Vincent with us here today to hear all about his study. So welcome, Vincent. All right, Vincent, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we love to start off kind of with our audience getting to know you. So can you share, how did you decide you were going to research food addiction? What was the personal professional journey that got you here? Yeah, I have to jump back a little bit. Uh, I I know I'm a student. I'm still early in my career, but I know for me, I've always loved food. I've always been uh, curious about eating behaviors and I remember like being in high school, I would come home and I just watched the Food Network just for fun, just for entertainment. <laughs> I just love food. And so with this love of food, I, um, you know, that can result in some overeating, right? And that can result in some tricky relationships with one's body. And that included me uh, as well from time to time. And so for me, I, I carried this interest in food and body image and eating throughout my education. So I I did a uh, bachelor's of science, biology and psychology. And in in university at the University of Toronto, I worked with a professor, uh, Janet Polovy, who studied eating. And she she had studied that for uh, many, many years. So from there, I then worked as a research coordinator at um, a bariatric surgery program at Toronto Western Hospital. And bariatric surgery is a type of weight loss or metabolic surgery. And in that setting, I had I had spoken with a lot of people who had been having lots of eating-related problems for a long time, and for many of whom uh, surgery was kind of like a last resort. But we know that with surgery, you know, it's not uh, it's not the cure all for some people, and people can still continue to have eating problems. And that's where psychosocial support therapy can be really helpful. And in that program, that's where I met my uh, current graduate supervisor, uh, Dr. Stephanie Cassin. She's a clinical psychologist, and you know, since that time, I've been working with her in terms of researching different eating related problems, not just in the bariatric surgery population, but the general com- community. 
And, um, you know, I've, I've somehow picked up different jobs and, and things like that working in this field. And when it came to planning for my doctoral dissertation study, I knew that I wanted to try a few things, but it was my supervisor who had suggested food addiction. And I hadn't known what that was at the time. And I was kind of wondering, you know, can we um, create some sort of treatment for something that hasn't been recognized yet? But since then, I've come to realize that people do identify with this problem and people do look for help. So how can we help them? And that's where kind of my ideas for my study came about. Well, we want to dive into that because we are personally really interested in it because we had our own kind of treatment audit study that we did and we're still collecting data on. But also like this podcast in in general, uh, the audience is very probably very interested in what you have to say about that. And so first things first, how did you define food addiction in your study? Should it even be called food addiction or should it be called something else? Is it a substance use disorder? Like inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, these are big, big questions, um, some of which I, I have some answers to, uh, some of which I, I don't yet. Um, yeah, so for our study, we use the Yale Food Addiction Scale. Um, your readers or your listeners, rather, would probably know what that is, but it's a, it's kind of a self-report survey that you can complete, but you can also do it with a clinician. And so what that does is it takes the substance use disorder criteria or addictions criteria from something called the DSM and applies it to, to food, uh, specifically highly processed foods, right? Like chips, cookies, cake, burgers, things like that. Uh, so the symptoms that you would find with, you know, problematic alcohol use or other substance use, how can that be applied to food? So that's the definition that we use for our study, and we use that survey. In terms of what it should be called, I don't have a particular preference. I mean, I read the literature quite a lot. So for me, it's really the concept that's important. So for me, I, I call it food addiction. I know that researchers are trying to call it maybe ultra processed food addiction instead. And I think that does get at what, what might be addictive, right? So it's probably not the minimally processed foods like you know, raw carrots, but probably the highly processed stuff. So I think it is a good kind of clarifying term. So, yeah. So just to be clear in your study, did you do you treat it as if it is a substance use disorder? Because that's how the Yale Food Addiction Scale mm -hmm. is set up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we used uh, different strategies. I'm not super, super familiar with the treatment of, you know, those traditional substance use disorders, but we did approach food addiction or this concept based on what the Yale Food Addiction kind of describes it as. So we look at those symptoms, we try to work with those symptoms, and, and sometimes using traditional CBT tools uh, that, that have come from the eating disorders world or the problematic eating kind of uh, treatment skills. So would you say that ultra processed food is intoxicating or that it has psychoactive properties to it? Yeah. So, you know, in my read of the literature and and, and kind of my focus is, is more on the psychology. So, you know, I may have just missed the literature on on things like the, the dietetic properties or like the pharmacokinetics and things like that. But my understanding is that Ultra processed food is not intoxicating. Um, and some of the researchers have commented on that. And, you know, 
I don't think that food does result in, you know, different kind of altered states of mind where it's potentially hazardous or dangerous. Like, um, you know, uh, when, when you drink, you know, you obviously shouldn't be driving, but when you eat, I don't think it alters your perceptions to the point where you can't drive, you know, unless you're falling asleep at the wheel because you're so full, it probably doesn't have the same effects in that way. In terms of psychoactive properties of food, that might be referring to whether kind of a substance is changing one's kind of um, emotions, behaviors, thoughts, probably to a lesser extent than intoxication. And, you know, things like coffee are considered psychoactive. So I do think that foods can be psychoactive. They probably are not having the same effect to the point of intoxication. So then you would say it would be more classification like caffeine or maybe nicotine, right? Because we can do these things, we can still function, we can still drive, but we still, you know, sometimes have that craving and desire for more of those. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and, and the researchers have talked about how, you know, tobacco uh, or nicotine doesn't have an intoxication kind of syndrome like the other substances, but it is still considered, you know, a risky substance. Yeah, that was the exact question I was going to ask, Clarissa. Yeah, I was going to jump in there for a follow-up, for sure. So we've definitely seen the literature that kind of refers to what we're working on, you know, whether it's food addiction, ultra-processed food addiction, again, like you said, whatever label it receives, you know, I'm kind of indifferent as well. Mm -hmm. I would like for it to capture an odd, you know, what am I trying to say? Like, I would like for it to capture the biggest population possible in which to help with whatever that term ends up being. And so there are research articles out there that call this eating addiction, where it's more behavioral than it is like that substance use disorder side of things. But I'm hearing you say, hey, it has psychoactive effects. I don't know if, you know, gambling has a psychoactive effect mm-hmm. or whatever. So like, is can you talk a bit about like how those two things would differ? Why maybe it's not behavioral? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So th- there is a lot of, you know, talk back and forth with researchers in terms of what constitutes an addiction. And, and like you said, like gambling, there are certain parts of it that look like the other substance use disorders, but other parts that obviously cannot because you don't ingest anything with gambling. So, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about whether or not food addiction is kind of a substance use problem or kind of a behavioral problem. I mean, it's, I think, the million-dollar question, and researchers have been arguing about it for at least a decade. I think that there, and this might be a cop-out answer, but I think there's probably elements of both. I do think that not all foods are created equally in terms of the rewarding properties, right? So, you know, highly processed foods are probably going to be the ones that are bringing people back as opposed to the less processed foods. So I will say, and I I do agree that certain foods are a lot more rewarding. And at the same time, I don't think that foods exist in a vacuum, right? We create different associations with food. And this is where I think the behavioral piece comes in, the psychology, I like to look at it. We, We create these associations with them. We have learned significance of foods, right? Foods can be really important to our culture, our social events, all that kind of stuff. And I think the same thing applies to other substances, right? Um, People don't become addicted to alcohol just because of alcohol. There's so many other things at play, like emotions too. So, you know, my cop-out answer would probably, there's elements of both, and I'm not sure if we have to pick one thing. I know that the people who are trying to decide on the diagnosis probably want to pick one thing, but 
again, I don't think that these things exist in a vacuum. Yeah. And I mean, how could we expect there not to be some level of behavioral when there is so much ritual around food in general? And it is something that every single person has to spend time with. Like they can't avoid it. Right. And so there will always be definitely some level of behavior around it. And so I'm also wondering if you could speak to how you measured food addiction for your study. I think you said you used the YFAS. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how the YFAS could be a bit problematic because it's a very subjective, it's self-assessment and, you know, why you think it might really be important to have someone with a clinical background administer this to someone if someone is listening in the audience and they maybe just have taken it themselves. Exactly. Yeah. The really great points. Yeah. So the Yale Food Addiction Scale, as you mentioned, is what we we used. And it is a self-report study. It was built and designed that way so that people could take it on their own. And that's a really um, kind of important element of the YFAS because it can be easily used in research. You can give it to 100 people and they can fill it out and you got some responses. You can kind of see whether or not they quote unquote have food addiction, right? But that's not how diagnoses of mental problems work, right? You don't give people a uh, survey on depression and then they have depression, right? You you, you need uh, clinically, you need a, a trained clinician to kind of help figure those things out. So the problems with self-report measures are that, um, and, and by no fault of the person taking it, it can result in misinterpretation, right? You know, anyone taking a survey might have some questions about this question or that question. Does that mean this? What if I have problems with that? And if you're doing it on your own, you can't really clarify with someone. And so when you work with a clinician who's been trained to look at these problems, um, who have background in eating disorders or other problematic eating patterns, they can think about it a little bit more and they can help the person guide them in terms of kind of the problems that they're having. So misinterpretation of items on that survey is probably one of the the biggest kind of problems with the YFAS. And different researchers have seen different problems that may come up with that. For example, sometimes people who are under eating or who are underweight might endorse high food addiction symptoms. And that's kind of puzzling for some people. If you're not eating much at all, how can you be addicted to foods? And so some researchers think that might be because of strict dieting or maybe malnutrition, starvation, where people are really focused on foods, but because they're just not getting enough of it. So that might be a different problem. Can you also speak to how, you know, even body image might come into that and like distress in terms of, you know, if I am so focused on that and maybe I'm only eating a few foods that I think are bad, how that might influence a score? Yeah. Yeah. And so the researchers have looked at the overlap with food addiction and eating disorders, and it can be actually quite, quite high. So it's something like binge eating disorder where, you know, people with binge eating disorder can, of course, have body image issues, but the criteria are made such that you don't have to be engaging in what we call compensatory behaviors or behaviors that are designed to suppress weight or prevent weight gain. And if if you do have those behaviors, you might fall under the category of bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa. 
And the overlap between these eating disorders and food addiction is really quite high. And so that makes disentangling, you know, problems with food and the food themselves with body image really difficult. People often have difficulties with both, right? As you can imagine, people, there is such a strong connection between eating and body image, right? And in terms of, I've lost my train of thought. What was the question again? Yeah, no, I was just wondering how, you know, say I do have potentially eating disorder and food addiction, because I know they're both on a spectrum and how, you Mm -hmm. know, that can really influence my score on the Yale food addiction scale. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you had mentioned um, clinically like distress and impairment, right? So what's interesting is that um, so just like in other substance use problems, so again, like if you have problems with alcohol, you might also have different kind of ways to feel distressed about that and ways in which your life might be impaired by alcohol problems. And so the YFAS has the the same symptoms for food, right? So actually, when we look at the YFAS, there are three kind of elements to social and occupational impairment, we call it. So the first one is when you're eating so much that it's taking up a lot of your time, or you're eating so much, or your eating patterns are you're spending a lot of time recovering from the effects of eating. Like, let's say eating a lot makes you feel sluggish. You're spending a lot of time recovering from that. So there's that piece. There's also the piece of where you are, uh, your eating patterns are interrupting the important activities in your life. Like you're giving up certain things in your life for eating or for food. And then I think to a more extreme end, and this is the kind of item that's studied the least in terms of social and occupational impairment is where um, you're, you're, you're not being able to, you're not able to fulfill the obligations of your job or of school of, or of work because of eating and your problems with eating. So these are kind of the, the things we look at when we think of social and occupational impairment. And people endorse these items for various reasons. And the researchers have been finding that for some people, this distress and impairment is because of weight-based stigma, right? So, for example, if, you know, if, if someone loves going to family parties, right, uh, they, they go to their aunt's house and they're having some food, but their aunt says, you shouldn't be having that. You know, why are you eating that? You know, the family members might be making fun of them because of their weight or their eating. So they might just not go to these family parties, right? They might just stop going altogether. They might stop having a social life. And so they might meet that symptom of impairment because of their social life, not necessarily because of perhaps the food, but because they're receiving the stigma from other people. And so then it becomes hard to disentangle why people are becoming distressed. Is it because of the food and the eating or because of what other people think of them? And a lot of that has to do with, again, weight-based stigma. Yeah, and I think uh, the importance I have found in even administering, you know, like the MYFAS is there's a question on there that like my friends and family are worried about how much I overate, but this is something we do in secret. So often friends and family don't have no idea. And so that can certainly affect a score. And then when you say, you know, would your friends and family be worried if they saw the way you overate, the way you eat on your own, then they might change their answer and it will definitely affect a score. And that's, I think, to your point, it's so important to have somebody to be able to help administer it 
and suss out kind of the nuances within it. Exactly. Right. And actually, I did find what exactly you're talking about. Right. People do get get confused with that question. And I do have to kind of clarify sometimes. Yeah. So is it just the under eating, underweight individuals who sometimes have like those false positives or because of this overlap with other eating disorders, whether it be binge eating disorder or bulimia? Um, can we kind of talk a bit more about that comorbidity and like how it could potentially be a false negative or a false positive? Yeah, yeah. So when we think about food addiction, one thing that I still think about is, you know, what is it? Is there a kind of pure food addiction kind of presentation where it's someone who doesn't have uh, an eating disorder or other kind of problems and their main presentation is this food addiction? I mean, the comorbidity is so high. But again, it's not 100%. So people have used that argument to say that, uh, well, food addiction is its own thing because it's not a complete overlap, right? And in my study, I found that I think something like 28% of people, so we did assess whether or not they had an eating disorder. 28% of people didn't have an eating disorder, which was curious. Uh, I think 40% had binge eating disorder. I think 25% had bulimia nervosa. Um, I think the remainder had uh, another kind of subthreshold eating disorder. But yeah, the overlap is so high. And what's curious is that group that does, doesn't meet the criteria for any of those things. So what's going on there? I haven't looked deeply, deeply into those kind of presentations yet. But clinically, from what I've been seeing, you know, it's curious. They, so those people would not have significant body image problems to the point where they're compensating like in bulimia and so from from the the few people that come to mind those are the people who are kind of having a problem more with the perception of the food themselves rather than the an objective eating problem so an example might be someone who is really distressed about maybe like eating one chocolate bar, right? One chocolate bar a week or every few days or something like that. They really can't stand the idea that they're having that piece of chocolate or chocolate bar and they think they shouldn't be having it. It's, you know, gluttonous, it's it's bad. They shouldn't be having it. And so my perspective is, you know, as a clinician, I have to think, well, is that food addiction? Is that overeating? Is that overconsumption? Is that something that would be quite normal for many people? And so for that person, again, this is very, very individual and it would have to be uh, tailored to their specific presentation and their different thoughts and feelings around this. But for that person, we might be working on how they feel about food and where that's coming from. So for that person, it could be, well, you know, my mom said I shouldn't be eating this all the time, right? And so there's those learned attitudes and perceptions around food that we can start to challenge. So yeah, so that, that's where I see some of those other kind of presentations of food addiction that don't overlap so much with uh, objective binge problems and co compensation. So, I mean, obviously, as harm reduction clinicians, we do definitely have those clients where maybe they are binging on multiple candy yeah. bars a day or yeah. a week and they do get to that one. Right. And they're still having this perception of like, this is bad or whatever. And we really work to say, wow, you've really reduced the harms of those exactly. uses. Yeah. Like this is 
a, a step in the, you know, a good direction or a positive direction from our perspective as clinicians. I mean, would you agree with that as well? Like kind of taking the other end of the spectrum of that? Yeah, 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 for sure. And in and, and my perspective on, with my study is it was very harm reduction and moderation approach, right? If someone is eating, you know, five bars of candy or chocolate a day, three is a lot better than five. Right. And sometimes people don't see how positive that is because they've been trained to kind of think in all or nothing or black and white. And so it must be no chocolate bars or all the chocolate bars. Yeah. Which I think that's one of the things that I really love about being a harm reduction clinician. Mm. You know, right? like I always think about like, do no harm or do as little harm as possible. Like I never want to create a problem that doesn't exist or make a problem that does exist worse. And I think about when we get into these like very like everything is like demonized or right, like food is there's good food and bad food, whatever that might be. That's where I start to get concerned about orthorexia, like creating the issue. I mean, have you run into any of that or is there any literature out there that is, you know, like kind of supports that idea that potentially if we approach this in a very concrete or black and white way, that it might create something like orthorexia? Yeah, I can definitely see that happening. And so what I will say is that the research, there isn't much research on abstinence approaches, right? 12-step programs applied to food, Overeaters Anonymous. Overeaters Anonymous has existed since the 1960s, but for some reason we don't know too much about it and we don't know how much, or sorry, how it kind of works. And so for some people, I'm sure abstinence works, which is great. And we also need to learn more about how and why it works. So if any of your listeners are uh, really into abstinence and they find that that really works for them, the researchers would love to hear from you and want to hear about that. Um, so just to, I guess, answer your question, we don't know too much about the effects of abstinence models, abstinence approaches, but I think we need to learn more about them and their effects. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is when we're starting this process, you know, it's really important that we meet with somebody who can help us figure out if, you know, something more rigid in the beginning is going to be more appropriate for us or something a little bit more flexible. And I know in your study, you used motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy. So can you talk a bit how that actually would help maybe someone get to a place where they might understand what treatment might be best for them? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, motivational interviewing or MI and cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, I kind of use the combined mind uh, therapy. So what we did was we delivered a four session therapy that combined all those things an hour each. We did it virtually because it was still in the early days of the pandemic. And so motivational interviewing, what that is, is it's a type of kind of counseling or therapy approach. It's not so much a type of therapy, although there can be skills that are formalized, but MI is a way of doing therapy that really came out of addictions work in the 1980s. And back then, based on what I read, therapy was much more directive. Like uh, clinicians would be like, you need to stop drinking, you need to stop smoking, this is bad for your health. And you can imagine being told those things what kind of reaction you might have, right? You know, if, if anyone's ever told you, you need to stop eating that, you know, it's not pleasant. You can become really defensive and, and for good reasons, right? 
So MI is a much more collaborative approach. It's client-centered. You're working with the individual to kind of identify the problems or you're doing that together as well as the solutions. And sometimes clinicians might forget that the client is the expert in their own lives, right? And they probably have some really good tools that they've used before. Maybe it doesn't work all the time, but uh, there's a wealth of knowledge and experience that the client has. And we can use MI to draw out that expertise. One big thing about MI is that it helps to what we call evoke um, people's own motivations, right? You know, you can tell someone eating that is not good for your health. It's not good for your diabetes. It's not good for your heart disease. They probably know that, right? And so we use different MI skills to kind of draw out people's own motivations for change. You know, why do you want to give up or eat less of these chocolate bars? Why do you want to do this? And so people start to say why, and we really kind of build that up so that that can help people propel into change. And change comes often through CBT. So once people are feeling motivated, they feel ready to go, hey, yes, I want to make these changes. What do we do next? So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is a very common therapy out there. It's been used for many different things. And that's where we get these formalized skills. And for eating problems, the first skill that we usually use is food tracking, food records, food logs, whatever you want to call it. Uh, just on a day-to-day -day basis, see, getting to see what people eat and not in such a rigid way where people are counting their calories because that can result in uh, some disordered eating. But we really want to focus on what are the triggers for eating? You know, did you eat that bag of chips because you had an argument with your spouse? You know, we start to then target the reasons for that overeating. And that's where that psychology piece comes in. So that's just a kind of a taste of, of what MI and CBT might look like. There's a lot of other skills like problem solving, challenging negative thoughts. A big one, I will say, is learning to use other pleasurable activities to enrich your life. Some people really build their identities and build their life around food, which can be great for many people, but for some people there there might need to be a another focus on other things so that the you know um, the um the eating doesn't become as problematic. Hey food junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. You've probably already heard about the importance of boundaries in our relationships and for our own mental health. But knowing that you need them and being able to set them in a healthy way are not the same thing. It takes action and practice, so that's exactly what we're going to do in this Sweet Sobriety Power of Boundaries workshop. You'll learn why exactly boundaries are important and how they can impact your own recovery, signs that you might need them, and ways to set them with others and with yourself to keep your recovery on track. This comprehensive workshop will cover the purpose, importance, and types of boundaries, common areas where we need boundaries, signs that you might need boundaries when everyone can see it but you, how to set, communicate, and uphold boundaries, what to do when your boundaries are tested, how boundaries impact your mental health, relationships, and your recovery, boundaries with difficult people, including ourselves. You're going to get four recorded workshops where Bethany walks you through all of the material, 
exercises to help you personalize and put the material into action, downloadable resources, as well as a list of resources for further exploration. And if you're joining us in November of 2023, you will also get four live sessions where we can share what we're learning and even try it out with each other. The price for the live session workshop in November, 2023 is $50 US and it's available at www.sweetsobriety.ca. Check the show notes for the link. Live sessions will be held noon Eastern, Wednesdays in November, and that's November 8th, 15th, 22nd, and 29th. Hope to see you there. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. So can you tell us a little bit more about these four sessions I imagine once, was there like an intake before the four sessions? Was the intake one of the four? How do you do this in four sessions? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I feel like therapy, we always need more and more time. Um, so what happened was, uh, just to describe the study a bit more. So we recruited from the community. Uh, we recruited people in Ontario. It was virtual, so we could reach a, a bigger kind of population in Ontario, Canada. Um, so we advertised uh, this study uh, to anyone who might think that they're addicted to foods or feel like they're quote unquote food addicts. And we would do a, a brief phone screen using the, the shortened version of the YFAS. Uh, and we, we made sure that people met the threshold for at least mild food addiction, right? So everyone in the study had some form of food addiction according to the YFAS. And then they did a bunch of questionnaires before being randomized into one of two conditions. So there was the therapy condition and then there was the waitlist condition. The therapy condition got the therapy right away. The waitlist had to wait about four months or so, but both groups completed the same surveys. And we, the idea was to compare both groups on these surveys to see which one had improved symptoms. And the idea was that the therapy group would improve more. And so there wasn't really uh, much of an intake other than that screen. Once people were randomized into therapy, we booked that first session and we got started right away. So that first session is kind of jam packed. What we do is we, you know, take basic information. A big part of MI is letting the patient or sorry, client, the participant tell their story. You know, what brings you to this study? You know, what's going on? Why do you feel like you, you want to make these changes? And that's engaging the client and creating a safe space for them. From there, we, we do an eating disorder assessment to figure out any other kind of core morbidities because that can help plan treatment and what that looks like. Someone who has bulimia, uh, their eating kind of um, therapy would look quite different from someone who has binge eating disorder, as you can imagine. And then from there, we, 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 um, provide some psychoeducation about food addiction. Uh, we provide some psychoeducation around um, tracking food, and that's really the first task after session one, right? And then session two, we do some more tasks around building up that motivation. And we might do something called a decisional balance where we look at the pros and cons of their eating habits. And then again, when people are starting to feel a lot more motivated, we start opening up the options to CBT strategies. And it's very client driven. Again, it's collaborative. So, you know, what do you feel like would help you? We, we might ask, I have some ideas, would you like to hear about them? And then I give them some options. What do you think would work best for you in your life? And so that's what session three and four might look like. At the last session, we do something called relapse prevention. 
That's very common in CBT where we kind of think about the future. What did you learn? What changes have you made? What goals have you achieved? And what do you want to achieve next? So um, it's a fast, lightning fast four sessions. It's jam-packed, but I have found that people can make, you know, quite big changes in those four sessions. So I'm curious, and I'm sure the audience is curious, did you provide a food plan for these people? And did you also find that individuals, if you didn't, were people looking for one? Yeah. So it was the question like, uh, did, did we create a food plan together kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. So that is a great question. I So I'm in psychology. I don't have training in dietetics. Um, you know, I have lovely colleagues who are trained in that and who I kind of refer them to. We didn't have any dietitians on this trial. Um, so I had to be very careful. I had to stay within my professional limits. I can't, I cannot administer a diet plan because that's out of my scope of practice. And I wouldn't even know how to do that in the first place. So I had to be very careful with that because some people really wanted me to tell them what to eat. But that, again, is not what I do. And if they really wanted that, I would refer them to dietitians in the community and things like that. So there is no diet plan. The So we look at food records and we see the general landscape, if you will, of their eating habits. And we try to think about, you know, where are the quote unquote problem areas? You know, if someone's binge eating late at night, I mean, I won't have a, a an eating plan or food plan for them, but how can we change the binge eating if that's what's distressing them? You know, what's leading to the binge eating? Again, is it, you know, arguments with your spouse? Is it because you have a really stressful job? How can we change that binge eating experience to be less distressing? How can we, you know, pump up some of the coping skills in other other parts of the day, right? So that you don't get to that binge. So my role in psychology is to help build awareness for the behavior that's going on and help people build on skills to um, kind of prevent or reduce problematic behaviors. So then if I was someone that was like, well, the binge eating keeps happening because it's these chips and I go to these chips and I can't stop thinking about the chips, you know, it's not anything else other than that, then you would potentially have a conversation about, you know, what do I think is the best thing to do, you know, with the chips? Is that kind of where you're going with that? Yeah. I mean, I will say most people do find some kind of behavioral or psychological association with the food. I, I, I wouldn't say that many people had a problem with the food itself, although people did have higher risk foods, I will say. And so we might think about other foods, you know, that, that provide some sort of reward, but aren't as uh, risky for them. Right. Or, or, you know, if, if you have a problem with a bag of chips, how can we make it so that the chips are portioned in a way that you don't have the urge to eat the whole bag? How can we build up different, uh, strategies so that that urge to eat the whole thing of whatever that is, isn't there? Right. And so we, we, we use different strategies. Um, and usually people can be flexible in terms of the types of foods that they're eating. It just sounds so similar to the treatment audit that we did. So we, because we are clinicians, so we both do mental health and addictions, like in our prior lives, right? Like we used to treat methamphetamine addiction, alcohol addiction, all of that. And we've transferred that knowledge and those skills to treat food addiction. And in our audit, you know, again, we're not dietitians either. And we said our lane with the food is this food is acting like a substance, like 
any other substance of abuse. So here would be the guidelines, you know, kind of thing that we would give you. And again, we're harm reduction clinicians, but the ultimate harm reduction would be zero, right? So we're kind of always aiming for abstinence, maybe with depending on the person, right? Not everybody can achieve that. But I like to say, listen, remove anything that's acting like a, like lighting up your brain, like a Christmas tree. Cause everybody, like, if I say that people hear that and they're like, oh yeah, I know what those things are. Once I start eating them, I can't stop. I'm going to be craving more. I'm going to, you know, maybe this idea of a binge and it's so interesting when people, you know, whether or not it's an actual binge is, is really interesting, but, but they know what I'm talking about. And then I say, remove anything you have to for medical yeah. purposes. If you're allergic to peanuts, please don't be eating peanut butter. Right. And then go for preference. If you don't like salmon, please, for the love of Pete, do not eat salmon. You're going to get angry. You're going to get resentful. Like just stick to those guidelines. And this idea of like you were saying, like high exposure foods, low exposure, right? We want to keep this, we want to keep what you're eating as abundant as possible, preferably non-high risk foods for you. And let's see what happens. And I think we might have had similar findings in our studies. I'm. Did you want to say more about that? Yeah, the findings of my study. Yeah. So we used various uh, uh, surveys or measures uh, at different time points. So the main one I'll talk about is the YFAS, right? So we, we administered the YFAS to both the, the waitlist group and the therapy group, both groups had about nine out of 11 symptoms on average at baseline. So nine out of 11 symptoms would be severe food addiction. And at every single time point after the therapy, so right after the therapy, one month after the therapy, and we went all the way up to three months after therapy, um, we didn't have a longer term uh, follow-up. That's one of the limitations of the study. But at every single follow-up point, the number of symptoms of food addiction was significantly less for the therapy group compared to the waitlist group, which is what we wanted to see, right? And at the very end, um, on average, the therapy group had about four and a half out of 11 symptoms compared to six and a half symptoms for the waitlist group. So the waitlist group did improve on their own without any therapy. And sometimes that does happen with waitlist groups, but that's why it's so important to have a waitlist group to compare to, because we want to make sure that any improvements are due to the therapy itself and not due to because people were doing other stuff, right? So on average, people in the therapy group did improve more than the waitlist group in terms of the number of symptoms. And you might think, Four and a half for the therapy group versus six and a half for the waitlist group is not a big difference, but it it is, right? So that's the difference between moderate food addiction and severe food addiction. And with a four-session intervention, you know, that, that's a that's a big bang for your buck, I suppose. And lots of people said they wanted more therapy, but we only had so much time and resources. Yeah. Do you imagine that you'll be following up with this group of people? at the six month mark, the one year mark or five year mark? I mean, do you have plans for that with this um, study? Yeah, so we don't have plans for that. So I had to be um, realistic in my ambitions for a doctoral dissertation. I've been told that this is a grander, you know, uh, RCT. I mean, I would like to take this this research further, but there is no current plans to follow up with these particular uh, clients and participants in the longer term. Again, that is one of the the big limitations. Uh, we want to see if these changes are sustainable, right? Uh, and three months is not a, a, a long follow up, but it, it does give us a good kind of signal for where it might go. Yeah, it's so exciting. Did you happen to measure? Um, did you happen to measure well-being or any or like anxiety, depression, any of those kinds of measures at all? 
Yeah, unfortunately, we did not. We we focused mostly on eating related problems. And so we did use another scale called the addiction like eating behavior scale, which is another way to think about food addiction. That one also did improve for the therapy group more than the weightless group. I will say the most, I guess, different measure is the weight bias internalization scale. So we did administer that for both groups. And that taps into something called weight bias internalization. Um, basically negative feelings about one's weight, right? If if you feel like you can't do certain things because of your weight, all, all those kinds of things, internalizing negative beliefs about high weight. That's what that's about. That one, we did not find significant differences between both groups. I mean, I, I hypothesize that we might because MI is so kind of collaborative, welcoming, and with the psychoeducation around food addiction, I was hoping that people would blame themselves less because there is some um, acknowledgement that the types of foods can potentially build that addictive process. These foods were designed, manufactured, engineered to get you to eat as much as you can. And I was hoping that that would relieve some of that stress around people's weight. Unfortunately, that was not found in the study. Both groups did, for some reason, reduce weight bias internalization. So we didn't find a difference between those groups. That's so interesting. I know in ours, um, so we did 10 weeks as groups. So it wasn't individual at all. It was groups, um, 10 weeks. And we measured well-being, which we like food addiction symptoms went down and well-being went up. Um, and one of the modules that we um, used in our psychoeducation modules was self-compassion. And I'm wondering, you know, if you had more time yeah. with, you know, carrying out your sessions, you know, would you have, I'm sure you would have had time to build to something like that and body mm -hmm. image and yeah. distress and, you know, tolerance skills yeah. and, and something along those lines. I mean, do you imagine those would be things that you would include if you were to do a longer study or did you have something else in mind? Maybe, I don't know. You know, I, I, ha I hadn't been thinking about what's next yet, but I think those are really great, great ideas. I love self-compassion. I often incorporate it in other, you know, uh, parts of my work. I had to be very careful with this study. Again, I couldn't be too ambitious because I want to graduate. <laughs> um, uh, I can't be too ambitious and, and make this, you know, a 10, 10 week intervention because, uh, you know, I had some wonderful, wonderful grad students who did help me uh, administer some of the therapy sessions, but I, I administered most of them on my own. So it was quite a, a lot to take in. I had to make sure that what I was focusing on was the eating problems and the food related problems. You know, if people, you know, if people told me I want to lose 40 pounds, I had to tell them, I'm I'm sorry, but I, I, I can't help you with that. Uh, we can talk about your weight. We can talk about um, things like that. But it was not an eating disorder in, in, in terms of like anorexia bulimia treatment. We really wanted to focus on the eating habits. And so I was restrained in that way to talk a lot about body image. We didn't do really explicit body image work. I think that would be really helpful for people with binge eating problems and food addiction problems. I don't think the research out there has really tapped into too much of the food addiction and body image problems. And I think we need to go there next. But yeah, I do think self-compassion body image work would be really helpful. Um, and I think self-compassion would be helpful for probably most people, even if they didn't have body image problems. 
Anecdotally, um, I know you didn't measure well-being, but yeah. did you notice in the individuals that you worked with any other like overall lifestyle changes? Like, although they were focused on the food, did they ever comment about, oh, you know, I used to do this and it wasn't really serving me. And I found that, you know, that has changed or, you know, other lifestyle change, like maybe now I'm going to the gym more, anything that you would feel comfortable commenting on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I would say one of the most powerful CBT strategies that we used beyond the food record was coming up with that list of pleasurable activities that people could engage in because it's so practical. It's so tangible. You know, what, what kind of hobbies do you like? What, what did you used to like doing, but you don't anymore because of life, because of work, because of stress, maybe because they've turned more so to eating. And so people did, you know, become perhaps more active. People did find ways to perhaps interact with their their loved ones in a more positive manner. And I can remember some people who perhaps they felt burdened by their eating habits. And when they they started to work on that, they could turn to other aspects of their life that they had been kind of ignoring for a long time. Right. So it's not just the eating habits that I found that we were working on. It had kind of a an effect where it spread to other parts of their life, which was so positive and so nice to hear. There was one person I worked with who who was using um, crystal meth regularly. And that person really worked on their eating habits, but they found that that gave them such confidence uh, that they were able to focus on those other substance use problems too. And that in turn helped heal some family divide that they were having too, which was nice to hear. I, I, I remember kind of that session and kind of like tearing up a little bit just because that person was such an inspiration that they could work on this one part of their life but it's spread to other parts of their life. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I think that's why I love this profession, right? Is that, you know, there are colleagues, if you will, out there across the board in mental health and addiction who think, nope, they have to do it this way or they have to do it that way or otherwise it's wrong or they're going to fail or whatever it might be. And I prefer to take a much more client-centered approach, much like you, Vincent. I'm more solution-focused brief therapy, but I've come from the world of CBTMI. So just very much person-centered. And it's always, I get the same way. I can definitely get emotional when I see like somebody has made this, this decision to change something or work on something that is seemingly completely disconnected from this other thing, but then it it's amazing how it just kind of like spreads. And I think it's just a good reminder that no matter what we think is right or wrong when it comes to this, the client is the expert in their life. And if they want to work on something and it has this positive effect and their overall quality of life is improved because of it, who are we to say that it's wrong at all? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One thing I just want to add there is something that I had to learn with MI which is challenging as a new clinician, right, is learning to let go. Uh, We cannot control our clients or patients. We cannot, you know, we can tell them you need to do this or that, but it's up to them. We can't physically force people to do any one thing or other. So what we can do is be there, be supportive, witness their change and help them with that growth. But letting go of that control can sometimes be difficult, especially if you're new, you're new to the field and and you want to feel like you can help. Sometimes 
you feel like you can't, but you got to let some of that control go. That's one of the things that I learned with motivational interviewing. Yeah, I think it happens with new clinicians. I also think sometimes it happens with anybody who has their own personal recovery story, right? Like we can get the transference and counter transference going on with our clients. And then it can be really hard to let go because we can be so adamant, like, no, it has to happen this way. Or, oh, I see this turning out badly. And we can get really worked up. And so absolutely, I think those are really good points to make for any professionals who might be listening to. So I know we are running out of time because we certainly do not want to keep you too long. I'm curious to know, do you have any thoughts on, you know, what kind of research is still needed in the world of food addiction or whatever label we're going to put on it? Like, are there food policies that we need to be creating, you know, in the terms of like public policy, or I know some of the the papers that you sent me, you mentioned things like fat tax and sugar sweetened beverages taxes and that kind of thing. What are your thoughts on like, what do we still need in order to like, not be so trivialized by the rest of like, maybe like the clinical world? Yeah, yeah. And so in terms of I I do think that there still needs to be more research done on the types of treatment. I mean, my study is just one, but I know that there are research groups in Australia that are testing things like MI and CBT as well, which is great. We need more of that. We need more evidence. Uh, Again, I do think that we need to uh, get more research around the idea of abstinence. And if that can work for people, that is really needed. In terms of other things, you know, I say this with my clients, there are only so many things we can control on individual level. Uh, We can't control what kinds of foods are stocked in the grocery store. We can't control the fast food restaurants in our neighborhoods, right? Uh, So I often work on an individual level. At the same time, I think it's so, so important to think about the broader societal level too. And so as you mentioned, Molly, there are um, there are policies being implemented around the world regarding things like taxes. So um, uh, some governments have been putting a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages, and the research seems to show that people buy less and consume less of these types of products, and with the hope that that can have some positive health benefits. Um, and, you know, governments can also invest those those taxes into uh, the healthcare system, which I think is great. I think one big barrier to those types of taxes is, I think, um, you know, public opinion. And I do think that big companies, you know, they have a lot to lose when their, their products are being bought less. And so those companies might say, you know, Hey, it's all about individual choice and things like that. But when, when their bottom line is being affected, I think we have to take those kinds of things with a grain of salt. Absolutely. So we do have a signature question before we go. And it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think I go back to to my, my, my core interests and values and passions. I think food is a beautiful thing. And I think that food can also cause a lot of distress and heartache for a lot of people and on occasion me as well. But I think if we focus, I, th- I think if I focus on, you know, what really um, inspires me and what I derive a lot of passion out of, I, I, you know, I can, I can build a career out of learning why people eat the way that they do. And along the way, in the pre- I'm lucky to be in a profession where I am able to help people mend their relationship with food, to improve that relationship with, with food and their body and the way that they cope with their day-to-day life. Because it's a hard world out there and people cope 
in the way that they cope. And sometimes it's about finding other strategies. So, yeah. Awesome, Vincent. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.